Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please feel free to write me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. Let's see what the group is up to now as we get into Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 15. The second day they had the flag, the next, they found that a problem went with it. George had taken it upon himself to be the one who first raised and lowered the flag, and the following morning he did the same. But they were so proud of it they all wanted to do this. When they clamored to do it, George claimed, I'm the one to do it. Gracie demanded, Why should you be the one? Because I'm the president. That isn't enough reason. It's plenty. I'm treasurer, said Paul. I ought to do it sometimes, and the other officers ought to, too. Joey put in, I'm the stockholder, and I should... No, sir, George went on. The president should do it. Where does it say that? asked Gracie. It doesn't say, but then everybody ought to have a chance. The president... Vote! cried Henny. Vote! As though recognizing his imminent defeat if a vote were taken, George gave in. Okay, okay, we don't need to vote. We'll take turns, divide the week up between us. How? asked Henny. Well, said George, there's only five of us, so it won't come out even. So I'll do it the first day, and then each of you has a day, making five, leaving over two. Because it doesn't come out even, I'll do the extra two days until the week starts again. He made this sound logical, but when it was studied and thought about a little, it was soon discovered to be fallacious. Gracie pounced on its faults. That gives you three days, Paul said unequivocally. That's chiseling. George turned on him. Who's calling me a chiseler? They faced each other. Their rivalry, growing and building up, seemed almost at a crisis. Paul's handsome young face reddened. I didn't call you a chiseler. I only said the plan was chiseling. It's the same thing. All right, then. You are a chiseler. Say that again. You're a... Gracie stepped into the argument. Fighting won't do any good. We each take a day straight through. The incipient warriors drew in their hackles, though George regarded Paul contentiously and objected sullenly to Gracie's suggestion Suggestion by predicting, It'll be hard to keep track. No, it won't, said Henny, if we mark it on a calendar. We'll write everybody's name on a day, and he can look at it and know that way. That'll do it, said Paul. Who's got a calendar? Henny asked. They thought... Joey remembered. I got one. George ordered, then go home and get it. Joey raced home for his calendar, and turned. it turned out to be the right kind for their purpose, being large enough to be able to write their names, even if in small letters, under each date. Gracie took up the club pencil. Who's first? George began. I'm president. You've already started. Gracie ruled him out. I'm vice president reminded Henny. That's the way it should go, Gracie decided. She wrote on the calendar, Henny, July 18th. Then she looked at them. Who's highest next, the treasurer or the secretary? Paul, as treasurer, 
was as magnanimous about this as Gracie had been about his sitting on the money, telling her, "'You go ahead.' Gracie wrote, "'Gracie, July 19th. Paul, July 20th. I guess the stockholder is next. Joey, July 21st. Then George, the 22nd. She kept on, with some labor and size toward the end, all through July and August, right up to when school started, the first week in September, right after Labor Day. When it was done, the calendar was nailed to the wall at eye level. Every day after they consulted, every day after that, they consulted it to see who would be the one on the following day to raise and lower the flag. The one so designated was almost always the first to arrive that morning, so as to be sure his prerogative was not usurped. Each, in his turn, proudly took the flag from where it was stored in the open box holding the TV, unfolded it, and then took it out to the flagpole where the cords were fastened through its eyelets. By this time, all of the others had usually arrived, and they watched while the flag was raised to drop straight down on a quiet day or flutter prettily when there was a breeze. When there was a strong wind blowing and the flag raised high and wrapped itself around the flagpole, they unwrapped it. They came to be as proud of their flag as they were, secretly, of their wealth. They admired this sufficiently, not to permit it to cause another difference among them. This came about on days when the one designated to raise and lower couldn't get there because his family took him away. On these days, George accepted it as his privilege to take the place of the one missing. The others did not like this, but they refrained from making an issue of it. They wished the police and the person of Mr. McGill did not pass so close by every afternoon. They saw him go by a number of times, and when he waved to them, they waved back, but they didn't have their hearts in the gesture, and they didn't invite him to visit them again. Usually they kept out of his sight. The possibility of Detective Brawley coming back to take up his investigation was not a welcome one. The thought of him and the occasional sight of Mr. McGill were both disquieting and made them feel as if they had done something wrong. When the musketeers individually began to go off alone for a few days, they did not do so because of a growing mistrust of their fellows, but simply because of a certain temporary boredom that set in occasionally with life at the clubhouse, a symptom of too much of a good thing. And then, also, a person likes to be alone sometimes and have something to do by himself, the kind of thing that is nobody else's business. Henny took a day off from the routine at the clubhouse by deciding to carry out a project that had long been in his mind, even before the money. Since the money, after which he could afford it, he had bought a number of medium-sized boxes of candy. This was better than the bars he usually bought on his allowance. The boxes were good. A few he had eaten entirely by himself. But usually he had to share them, either at home or at the club. His real candy dream was a box he had seen years ago in the window of a candy store down in the city. It was a great circular box, an exact round, that displayed the most delicious-looking exhibit of chocolates he had ever seen in his life. In it was everything he had ever longed for in the chocolate line, from creams to covered nuts and fruits. Some of the fancy pieces were wrapped in silver, gold, red, and green foil. 
others, the round kind, were obviously nice rich cherries and sweet syrups. On those he doted. This box was displayed right in the center of the window. It was always there, and no one ever seemed to buy it. Henny supposed this was because no one could afford it. It was a five-pound box, and the first time he had seen it, a neat little sign placed at its side read, Seven dollars and fifty cents. Later, the sign read eight dollars and fifty cents. The last time he had seen it, it read nine dollars and ninety five cents. This figured out at practically two dollars a pound. He could do better than that for the money by buying bars or chocolates not in such a fancy box. Now it didn't seem so expensive. He had a lot more than nine ninety five for a box of candy. What with his allowance and four dollars a week from the money, it wasn't hard to accumulate a pretty good amount. Right now, he had nearly twenty dollars. He decided to do the one thing in life he cared about most. So, one morning, instead of going to the clubhouse, he made his way in the opposite direction up Oxford Road and out of Buckingham Hills. He caught the bus into town, and on the ride, a terrible thought came to him. The box had been in the window of the store for so long the candy must be stale. He didn't like that idea. He wavered in his love for the round box and thought it might be better, after all, to get another box. They must have some other big ones in the store, too, or even a number of smaller ones, or even just five pounds of assorted chocolates. Maybe that would be it. Still, another fear came to him that the box had been bought by somebody else since he'd seen it, and it wasn't there at all. When he reached the store and stood in front of its window, he saw that the box was still there. His love for it flowed again. It was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. It didn't matter if it was stale. It had to be his. And he was glad to see that its price hadn't gone up any more. He'd better get it before further inflation set in. Inside the store, he was the only customer because it was fairly early in the morning. A middle-aged woman clad in a white dress stood behind the counter and looked over at him. Her lips were thin and red painted a little too much, and she asked in a not welcoming voice, Yes? That box in the window. As though punishing him for something, the woman demanded, Which box do you mean? There are many boxes in the window. The one she interrupted him by asking, The special one pound at a dollar thirty-five, is that the one you mean? Henny didn't like her, but she was so severe he was impressed with her, and he also didn't want anything to interfere with his objective, so he assumed a polite attitude. No, ma'am, not that one. Which one, then? I mean the other. The There are a number of others. There's the two pound at two fifty, and the... No, ma'am, not them. Then the three-pound at... Not that one. She gazed at him. Surely you don't mean the very special, the one we're known for, for Christmas gifts, the... And he didn't know it by these designations, but he knew now that the lines of communication between the woman and himself were open, and they were talking at last about the same thing. Yes, ma'am, he told her. That's the one. That's a five-pound box. Henny nodded eagerly. The price is nine ninety-five. Henny nodded again. Did you hear the price of that box, young man? Nine ninety-five. He repeated. She considered this customer and spoke as if unsure she could discourage him. There's tax too, three percent. 
Henny had forgotten this, but it didn't matter. Yes, ma'am. That will make it ten dollars and twenty-five cents. Henny repeated. Yes, ma'am. She looked down at him over the counter and questioned him some more. You're buying it for someone else? Someone sent you? That's it. Are you sure that's the box they want? Oh, yes. They gave you the money for that particular box? I got it right here. He took out ten dollars from his pocket, turning sideways a little so the woman could not see the rest of what he had, and also extracted a quarter in change. He showed this to her. She looked defeated. He put the money on the low part of the counter. That's right, isn't it? It's right. Then I'll take it. Very well. She turned about and began opening the case there. Henny asked, Don't I get the one in the window? She turned back. That's for display. It's changed every... That's the one I saw. It's for display, she scolded. Henny no longer felt it necessary to be overly polite. That's the one I want. Our boxes are all the same, exactly the same. There's no difference in quality or content. I can assure you each is made up in exactly the... I want that one. They had reached an impasse. The woman looked down at him with distaste. Henny stood his ground, even though it wasn't easy to get what you wanted for your money, no matter how much you had. She glanced at his money on the counter. Without a word, she came out from behind the counter and went over to the window. This she opened with a snap and took out the big circle of candy. Its cover was contained beneath it, and she removed this and placed it over the top. She carried it behind the counter, and as she walked, her heels tapping like blows on the floor, she asked in a tight voice, "'Do you wish it wrapped?' "'No,' Henny answered. Then he thought how it would look on the bus and amended, "'Yes.' Silently, she wrapped the big box of candy. Being round, it wasn't easy to make too neat a package of it, and she did not make too much, make too much effort to succeed.' Without a word, she handed it over to him. He took it without saying anything. She didn't deserve anything. Even if she had, Henny was so entranced at having the beautiful heavy box of candy in his hands that he would have forgotten to say a word. He turned and almost ran from the store as though the woman might call him back and say it was all a mistake and he could not have the candy. On the bus going back, he was tempted to unwrap the package and begin, but he restrained himself. The other passengers might poke their noses into his affairs. About three-quarters of the way home, he got off the bus and walked down a street until he reached a deserted section. Here he sat on the curb. Slowly enjoying every second of the operation, Henny unwrapped the package. He discarded the white wrapping paper, and then, there, right in his very own hands, was the big round box. He hefted it. He hoped they hadn't cheated him on the weight, and that it was a full five pounds. It felt heavy enough. He wondered if they weighed the box with the five pounds, or if that was extra. He hoped it was extra. He savored the moment before he opened it. Looking at the fancy design on the red cover of the box, it was real class. He lifted off the cover and let his gaze wander over the wonders within, so close to him now, no longer separated by the glass of a store window. At the sight and proximity of the rich chocolates, he felt his saliva glands begin to work so copiously that he drooled slightly. 
He had a hard time selecting the first piece, but finally decided on a gilt-wrapped, chocolate-covered syrup cherry. With tender love and affection, he worked off the wrapping. With the holy feeling, he eased the candy into his mouth. He let it melt until the chocolate had worn away, and he tasted the first drip of the syrup. Instantly, then, he crunched on the cherry so as to mix them. That brought the best result. It was so good that he chose another for his second. They were not, as he had feared, stale. They were delicious. He started on the creams. One after another, they went into his mouth and down his ready gullet. He couldn't get enough of them. He changed this by working on the nuts for a time. Then he went into the chocolate-covered fruits. There was a good deal to say for them. He was consuming rapidly now, and he kept up the pace for quite a while longer. Then he began to slow. They tasted just as good, but it didn't seem necessary to eat them so fast. That way they would last longer, too. He looked down and saw that over half the box was gone. He was glad he had five pounds and wasn't running out. He, was ex he wasn't exactly sure when he began to feel a little funny. He thought it was when he ate the big cream with the yellow running stuffing, or it might have been the sweet sugary one. But he knew, as he lifted a new piece toward his mouth, that he didn't want it. His hand lowered itself as though working of its own volition and returned the piece to the box. He felt sweat break out on his forehead. It didn't seem to be the same kind of swelt... Uh, didn't seem to be the same kind of sweat he felt inside the clubhouse when the door was closed, making it hot, but another kind. It flowed down his body. It seemed to affect his stomach in some way, causing an ache there, and then suddenly a real pain. Something convulsed. Hastily, he put the candy box down beside him on the curb. He tried to get to his feet, but only lurched forward on his knees. He felt so weak he put out his hands and leaned on them on the ground. And then he was sick, sicker than he had ever been before in his life. He didn't think anybody could be that sick. It took hold of him and racked him, and it entered his nose, some of it actually coming out there. It made his eyes water and run. It splattered over his hands and arms and some over his clothes, but he didn't care. He didn't think it would ever end, but finally it did. It left him gasping for air and weaker than ever. When he was able, he sat back on the curb and took long breaths, sucking them in with gasps. With the back of his hand, he removed the water from his eyes. His stomach felt crushed. It really hurt. His throat and his nose burned as though acid had passed through them. It had in the form of his digestive juices traveling in the wrong direction. He felt awful. Worst of all was the clammy feeling of his skin. He didn't perspire any more, but the sweat covering him began to dry, sticking his clothes to his body. After a time, his face felt all right, for there was a little cooling breeze, but his body didn't feel any better, especially his stomach. He spit a couple of times to see if that would help the burning. He didn't have much to spit, and it didn't help any. He swallowed rather dryly, but kept swallowing. That seemed to help a little. He looked at his results on the street, and the sight nearly convulsed him again. Finally, he felt a little better all around, enough to start thinking that the money hadn't seemed to do him much good today. Being rich tasted fine going down, but it certainly didn't coming up. 
he got to his feet and stood unsteadily. He looked down with distaste at the remainder of the candy in the big box. He walked away, leaving it there. That brings us to the end of segment 15. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk again next time.